going to consider a very brief psalm. It is three verses in length, but it's a psalm that is a packed full of truth. Psalm 133. I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 133. Let us hear God's holy word, Psalm 133. It is entitled, A Song of Ascents of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Dear friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's seek the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your spirit once again you would open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that by your spirit you would use uh, the preaching of your word this evening to deepen and strengthen our faith and also to deepen and strengthen our bonds of fellowship and love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Again, I would encourage you, if it helps you to follow along, to uh, keep track of the key words that are listed in your uh, bulletin or in your uh, sermon outline. Well, dear ones, one of the saddest, most grievous realities in the Christian world today is the reality of disunity among the professing Christian churches. Division, schism, a sectarian spirit, and disunity among the professed people of God is far more common than we might wish to admit. And few things can be more heartbreaking to the souls of the godly than witnessing folks who claim to trust and love and follow Jesus biting and devouring and squabbling with each other in a spirit of venomous vitriol, abusive rhetoric, and tribalistic pride. And few things present the unbelieving world with a poorer witness for Christ than a divided, disunited, conflict-ridden Christian church. I don't know about you folks, but over the years as I've, as I've had opportunity to speak with unbelievers or with those uh, who are perhaps believers but disaffected by the church, many of them will say things like, why is, the, you know, why is it that you Christians hate each other so much? Or, or why is it that you are so disunited? How can, how can we claim uh, to be followers of Jesus if we, if we don't love one another and are not in unity with one another? Now, of course, dear friends, many professing Christians grieve over the current disunity of the church. And we should. We should grieve for the disunity of the church because the disunity that is found in the body of Christ is indeed grievously offensive to the honor of Christ and to the Holy Spirit who himself unites us to Jesus Christ. But what is the solution to this disunity that is so common today? among the body of Christ. Well, one attempt, it's a well-intended attempt, to heal divisions in the visible body of Christ was and is the so-called ecumenical movement. The modern ecumenical movement in the so-called mainline churches, a movement which was influenced by theological liberalism or modernism, 
sought to restore unity among the churches by basically downplaying the doctrinal differences that have historically divided the various Christian denominations. And instead of seeking unity in doctrine, there was a tendency to seek organizational unity or unity in works of service and charity. Nothing wrong with with uh, organizational unity. In this, uh, we, we're Presbyterians. We love everything to be done decently and in good order. And the Spirit of God is a spirit of order, not of chaos. But is that really the solution to division in the church? Organizational or bureaucratic attempts at organizational unity or unity together in works of service and charity. Again, nothing wrong with works of service and charity done out of love for our fellow man, but Is that really what brings true unity in the body of Christ? Friends, this ecumenical approach to Christian unity is well expressed in the saying, doctrine divides, service unites. Or perhaps you've heard it put this way, doctrine divides, love unites. The spirit of the modern ecumenical movement can also be detected in the slogan, deeds, not creeds a slogan which, ironically and incidentally, is itself a creed of sorts. However, dear ones, this modern ecumenical approach to Christian unity simply will not do. It will not do, not simply because it's incapable of producing that which it aims at. It will not do because it is unbiblical. Indeed, it is contrary to the Word of God. You see, friends, The Bible, God's Word, teaches that our Christian unity is a unity in the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unlike the ecumenical movement, Scripture does not drive a wedge between creeds and deeds. It does not drive a wedge between doctrine and service or between doctrine and love. On the contrary, Scripture teaches that the biblical faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the faith revealed in the Holy Scriptures, is indeed a creed, and it is a creed that is meant to lead to and bear fruit in deeds of love and good works. To pit doctrine and service or deeds and creeds against one another is a false and unbiblical dichotomy that undermines a biblical worldview. Beloved, if we wish to work towards restoration of unity in the visible body of Christ, we must first understand what that unity is and also where it comes from. In Scripture, this unity is fundamentally a spiritual unity, spiritual with a capital S, because it is a unity produced by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, and it is experienced by true believers in union with Jesus Christ. It is not the product of administrative church bureaucracies or of social gospel do-goodism. This deep-seated unity among believers that is produced by the Holy Spirit and experienced in spiritual and saving union with Christ is the kind of unity that our brief psalm for this Lord's Day evening points us to. It is a unity which the redeemed family of God dwells together, a unity in which the redeemed family of God dwells together in peace and in harmony. So as we turn our attention to this brief passage for this Lord's Day evening, I want us, first of all, from verse 1 
to consider what we learn here about the blessing of spiritual unity in God's family. If you're following along in your outline, this is the first main point. Let's consider the blessing of spiritual unity in God's family. The psalmist, it is entitled, A Song of Ascents of David, and the psalmist begins, Behold, that means pay attention, listen up, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now this psalm is entitled, A Song of Ascents. These psalms that are called Songs of Ascents were likely described that way or, or designated that way because they were likely sung by religious pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem for the annual feasts that had been appointed by God in the law of Moses. And during these annual feasts, God's people from the various tribes of Israel and scattered throughout their tribal allotments in the promised land, they would go on pilgrimage and they would come together They would gather together as one before the tabernacle or later on before the temple of the Lord in order to worship their God together. Such events would remind God's people not only of their oneness in their worship of the one true and living God, but would also remind them of their history and their heritage as those who had been graciously redeemed from slavery in Egypt and brought into covenant relationship with Yahweh, their faithful covenant Lord and Redeemer God. Now, this psalm is attributed to David. It's a song of ascents of David. Now, uh, biblical scholars debate whether this is the case. There is a question about whether or not this psalm was originally written by David because of the fact that not all textual sources ascribe this psalm to him. The uh, the designation or the, the title of David uh, is in some of the ancient texts and not in others. So there's debate about whether, in fact, David was the one who penned this particular psalm. But whether or not David was uh, the human author of this psalm, we know that, uh, that uh, this psalm was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and, and the authorship of this psalm doesn't really impact the uh, uh, the meaning of the psalm. And furthermore, David, King David, whether, whether he wrote this psalm or not, would give his hearty amen to this psalm, no doubt. Now, what does the psalmist say? Behold how good and how pleasant it is. He focuses on the goodness and the pleasantness of oneness, of unity among brothers and He's talking here, I believe, about the spiritual brotherhood, uh, the spiritual family of God. He's talking about the brotherhood enjoyed by God's people. The spiritual unity of God's people as experienced together in their corporate worship and fellowship is described as good and as pleasant. The, uh, uh, The imagery used of precious oil upon the head coming down upon Aaron's beard, perhaps uh, is an image, an illustration of the goodness of this fellowship, uh, whereas the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion is perhaps intended as a picture of the pleasantness of such uh, unity among spiritual brothers and sisters. Though the people of God in their pilgrimages to Jerusalem at that time came together from different backgrounds, different localities, different tribes, different 
locations within the promised land. When they came together, they came together with one purpose, and that purpose was to worship and serve God in his holy presence. Remember what the, uh, what the tabernacle and later on the temple represented. What did that represent? That symbolized and signified God's covenantal reign and presence dwelling in the midst of his people. And of course, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that temple imagery. For in Christ, the word made flesh, God, the son, the word, the eternal word, came and pitched his tent, made his dwelling in our midst. So they come together in the holy, saving, covenantal presence of God. They come together from all kinds of different backgrounds and tribes and localities, but they come together in Jerusalem to worship their covenant Lord. And as they do so, they truly dwell together in unity. And the psalmist says, how good, how pleasant it is. The opposite is implied as well. The opposite of, of the goodness and pleasantness of dwelling together is the, uh, is the evil and the, the discord and the unpleasantness of division uh, among God's professed people. What are some of the takeaways or some of the implications that we can glean from, from this first verse? Well, there's many things, again, that we can learn from this, but I would point us to the fact that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are meant to dwell together in unity in the body of Christ. We are not meant to live apart as isolated Lone Ranger Christians. We live in a a highly individualistic age, a hyper-individualistic age. And there's many uh, professing Christians today who would claim to love Jesus, but not so much his church. But friends, we're not just meant to be Christians in our private prayer closets or in our personal study of the Word of God. We are meant to dwell together in unity, for we are the family, the forever family of God. We are His blood-bought children in Jesus Christ. But where, again, where do we primarily experience this dwelling together in unity? Well, the answer from the context of our passage for this evening, is in corporate worship together. It is when we gather together and raise our praises to the Lord and receive together the word of the Lord that our unity, our spiritual unity, which we have in Christ, is expressed and displayed in its, uh, in its most powerful sense, this side of glory. Passages like this one remind us, beloved, that biblical piety is fundamentally corporate and communal in nature, not individualistic. Now, of course, that is not to deny the individual aspects of our faith. We often hear uh, Christians today talking about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we affirm that. That's properly understood, biblically understood. That's very important. You have to be, uh, you have to have a personal trust in Christ for salvation. But that personal trust in Christ is not meant to be just personal just between you and Jesus and no one else. It is meant to bring you into the family of God. When Christ saves you by grace alone, through faith alone, he brings you into unity through the Holy Spirit, into unity with his body, with the universal body of Christ. Now, as a backdrop to the blessedness spoken of in this passage, one of the things we need to remember 
is that spiritual unity in the family of God has always been a struggle throughout redemptive history. We might be tempted to look at the uh, life of the church today, to look at uh, the, the poor condition, the disunited condition that the professing church is in today, and we might be tempted to say, oh, it's, it's never been this bad. Well, that's not really the case. As one commentator reminds us, the commentator writes, the history of Israel, whether of its ancestors in the book of Genesis or of later periods, was a history of distinct groups struggling to live in unity. You see, friends, throughout its history, the different tribes among the Israelites often found themselves in conflict with each other. Uh, just to give some examples for those of you who uh, know about the biblical history, and I'd encourage you to study uh, biblical history uh, throughout uh, the scriptures. The Bible, especially the Old Testament, is full of historical books. Remember the days of the judges, right after the Israelites had been brought into the promised land and had been assigned their tribal allotments and and as they got settled in the promised land and dealt with, uh, you know, putting away and, and seeking to conquer uh, the, the peoples that still remained in the land, remember those days. In the days of the judges before the monarchy, Israel was settling into life in the promised land. Israel at that time existed as a loose tribal confederacy. If you study the book of Judges, if you study the history of that period, one of the things you will notice is that there were often tensions and conflicts, not just between Israel and, the, and the, their neighbors that existed in, within the land or outside of the land, but amongst the tribes of Israel themselves. And of course, this struggle for unity was especially highlighted in the history of the divided kingdom. When the northern tribes of Israel separated themselves from the southern tribe of Judah in the early days of King Rehoboam, the son of King Solomon. The disobedience of God's people to their covenant obligations had inevitably led to the fracturing of the United Kingdom under David. Well, what about in this new covenant era in which we live? We live in a period of redemptive history when, when the church is no longer confined to a a, a single theocratic nation, now the church, the people of God, the Israel of God has gone international. The gospel extends beyond the boundaries of national Israel to go into all the world and to embrace Gentiles into the people of God as well. Well, even in this new covenant era, we have seen this particular kind of sad division replicated in the history of the Christian church. If you study church history, and by the way, I would encourage you to study and read up on church history. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful faith-strengthening thing. But as you study church history, you'll find things that will be very encouraging. You'll see the hand of God and God's providence guiding the church in, in great uh, theological controversies, you know, the Trinitarian controversy and uh, and then the Reformation and all of that. There's so much to be encouraged by, but there's also, I must warn you, if you get into church history, there's a lot to be discouraged about as well. Uh, the history of the church, Christian church is, yes, it's a history of some wonderful victories, but it's also a, a history of some serious sin and schism and heresy. However, friends... In Christ, those who are savingly united to him are indeed truly one, spiritually one, one in the spirit, at least in principle, if not in perfection. 
And on that final day when our Lord Jesus returns in glory, the unity of God's forever family will be displayed as redeemed sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be gathered in glory before the throne of God and before the Lamb. Then we will know in a superlative sense just how good and just how pleasant it is for God's people to dwell together in unity before the Lord. Are you looking forward to that day? That day when the new heaven, when Christ returns and we are gathered before his throne, all is put to rights, and we are, we are in his presence forever. Then we will know, in the ultimate sense, just how good and pleasant it is to dwell together in unity. But not only does this psalm speak to the goodness and pleasantness of this unity, Next, as we move on to verse 2 and the first part of verse 3, let us consider the holiness and fruitfulness of spiritual unity. The holiness and fruitfulness of spiritual unity. In the first verse, the psalmist extols the goodness and pleasantness of this unity, but then he gives some illustrations. He describes it. He He likens it to some things. He says, "...it is like the precious oil upon the head." Coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. Who was Aaron? Aaron was the high priest, right? Moses' brother Aaron. This is talking about the Aaronic priesthood. It's talking about Aaron being anointed for his priestly office. It's like precious oil upon the head. Coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. Coming down upon the edge of his robes, those sacred priestly robes that he wore. And then another illustration, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Now let's focus on verse 2. What is the psalmist talking about here? Precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. Well, this, again, this refers to the sacred anointing oil that was used to anoint Aaron and the Aaronic priests to their priestly office. This sacred anointing oil was poured out abundantly upon the priest's head and would flow down upon his beard and, upon, and drip down upon his holy garments. And the symbolism here is tremendously rich and deep. After all, this anointing oil symbolized the work of the Holy Spirit, in particular the work of the Holy Spirit in consecrating, in setting apart, and in equipping the priests for their priestly service. Now, did you notice, the priests don't anoint themselves. They don't consecrate or equip themselves to God. Instead, God, by His Spirit, as symbolized in this anointing oil, consecrates and equips them. The equipping comes from above and drips down upon them. It's not something that they work themselves up to or do for themselves. God, by His Spirit, consecrates and equips them. In addition, remember who these priests were. It is to be remembered that these priests were set apart not merely to serve and represent themselves. They were set apart to a public office to represent the people before the Lord. So theirs was a representative office that they were consecrated and set apart to. And of course, friends, all of this Imagery points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ as our Redeemer is our great prophet, priest, and king. And as our great high priest, 
Jesus Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. That is pointed to, that is typified in our passage for this evening. Now, what we learn here in this imagery of of the anointing of Aaron for his Aaronic priesthood, and I believe Aaron is a representative of of the entire priestly class, the Levitical priests here. Uh, Again, this is Old Covenant language being used. What does this point to? What are some of the implications here? Well, first of all, true spiritual unity among God's people is the result of Christ's priestly work and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is a blessing granted from above. It comes down upon us from above. It is not something that we can accomplish by our efforts. Although we are indeed called upon in Scripture to give diligence in preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But it is the unity of the Spirit that we are to be diligent in persevering, in preserving. The Spirit is the one who grants us this unity. We are to preserve that unity. And the unity that Christ produces, again, it is spiritual in nature, not merely external or organizational. Although, again, as I mentioned before, the Spirit of God is not a spirit of chaos, but is a spirit of, of organization, if you will. We are to do everything decently and in good order. That is uh, how the Spirit works. And then this other image, this other picture that the psalmist gives us, he says that this goodness and pleasantness of dwelling together in unity, he says it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. One commentator explains it as such regarding Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a tall, snow-covered mountain on the northernmost border of the Promised Land, part of the range that is the source of the Jordan River. Moisture comes from those mountains to fall on the dry land of Israel. The imagery of dew falling on the mountains of Jerusalem is one of refreshing moisture falling on dry ground. Such is the blessing of spiritual unity. True unity in Christ, unity in the truth of the gospel produced by the Holy Spirit is something that is refreshing and fills us with joy. But this dew, it's also important to understand that this dew was crucial in providing moisture for the vegetation in that area of the world, especially during its dry season, which could often extend for lengthy periods of time. So by using this imagery, the psalmist may also be intending to picture the fruitfulness that such spiritual unity brings. When we are truly united in Christ, united in his person, united in the truth of his gospel, that bears spiritual fruit. It bears fruit for the kingdom of God. It bears spiritual fruit in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Beloved, Since true spiritual unity is found in Christ and flows down from us as a blessing of God through the work of the Holy Spirit, let us pray for our Lord to strengthen our bonds of unity in the truth of the gospel. But finally, beloved, as we wrap up our consideration of this brief psalm, we notice that the psalmist presents eternal life as the ultimate blessing associated with spiritual unity. And this is my final point, based on the end of verse 3. 
Eternal life is presented as the ultimate blessing associated with spiritual unity. If we are united in Christ, we are united in our enjoyment of the gift of Christ, which is life eternal. To know Christ is to know life eternal. And if you know Christ, you share with me and we share together as brothers and sisters in the unity of the gift of eternal life that is found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice how the psalmist puts it, though. He says, as he talks about the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, you know, Zion, the mountains of Zion were were in the south of of, uh, the promised land. Mount Hermon was to the north, so it's somewhat of an idyllic picture here. But what is it picture? He says, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Where is the there that the psalmist is speaking of? Well, again, I will uh, quote from Dr. Van Gameren. He says, where God's people are living together, quote, in unity, there the Lord sends blessing by his, quote, command. The nature of the blessing is specified in the second part of this verse, even life forevermore. And again, in the context of this psalm, where are the people gathered together and dwelling together in unity one with another? Well, these are the pilgrims gathered together before the tabernacle or temple of the Lord, the place of God's special dwelling in the midst of of his people, the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement, the place of forgiveness, the place where the Lord puts his name upon his people and blesses them with his forgiving, covenantal, saving grace. It is there that the blessing of life eternal is experienced. Again, to quote from another commentator from Jerusalem, comes the promise of everlasting salvation, symbolized on the Temple Mount, but fulfilled on that other mountain of Zion, Calvary, where Christ was crucified. It is there, at the foot of the cross, that we experience life eternal. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we are united in Christ. We are united in clinging together to Christ and his finished work on the cross, that is the source of our unity, this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we are united in Christ at the foot of the cross, looking to him and him alone for our salvation, we are one with each other. The spiritual unity of true believers expressed in their fellowship and love for one another is presented in Scripture as one of the evidences of being in possession of the gift of eternal life. For example, if we turn to 1 John chapter 3, let me just briefly read 1 John 3, verses 14 through 16. 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. The Apostle John writes, We know that we have passed out of death into life, Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And sometimes we we hear people who hear of people who say they love Jesus, but they hate the church. They hate the people of God. You can't love Jesus if you don't love his bride, his body. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, we are not saved by loving the brethren, but if we are trusting in Christ as our Savior and Lord, if by sovereign grace we have put our faith and trust in Jesus and know his saving grace, we will love our fellow believers who also trust in him. Dear listener, do you love and desire to dwell in unity with the family of God? Have you received the gift of eternal life? Repent of your sin. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for your salvation from sin. And God's word promises you that you will dwell in unity with the forever family of God. It's a gift of God by sovereign grace and sovereign grace alone. Turn to Christ today. Indeed, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. We are the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the forever family of God, knit together by the Spirit through faith in Christ. May God enable us to continue to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord and Father in heaven, we do thank you, Lord, for our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, in this fallen world and dealing as we do, Lord, with, uh, uh, with a, a sin nature that continues to abide in us, we often find ourselves in disunity with our brothers and sisters. We pray, Lord, that by your grace you would enable us to give all diligence to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And may we grow in love and unity for one another as we grow in our knowledge of your word and in our adherence to the unchanging truth of your God-breathed, infallible, inerrant scriptures. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. As we close our time in worship this evening, I'd invite us to rise and we'll sing together Psalm 133a, how excellent a thing it is. We'll rise and sing 133a.